1: I had two oncologists who disagreed with the treatment plan that I was supposed to be on. I had already started the treatment. Like I already feel like I'm dying from chemo and like now you're gonna tell me I might be on the wrong one.
0: From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, And this is Out of Patience. On today's show, one of my best friends and partners in crime for the young adult cancer movement and a true origin story best friend who I've known and worked with for over a decade, Alice Cresci. How to encapsulate all that is Alice? Business entrepreneur, breast cancer survivor, relentless advocate for fertility and family planning rights through cancer, nonprofit founder, lobbyist, activist, provocateur, mentor, advisor, Sherpa? And now the founder and CEO of MedAnswers and its groundbreaking Fertility Answers mobile app. Alice and I talk about the trials, tribulations, pros-cons, and mental health cost-benefit to both the private and nonprofit sector, perseverance in the face of adversity and dumb fuckery, and reconciling that if we don't build the right teams to make a dent in the universe, no one else will. Never give up, never surrender. Here's Alice Creasy. Alice, I really wanted to just talk to you on a like a retro throwback, get the band back together conversation, because so much has happened since the last episode of The Stupid Cancer Show and the first episode of my podcast. And you have been family for so long. You bear a role in my career trajectory, unlike many have. And the perch upon which you now sit is one of deservedness. And you have always ah. been... A mentor and a friend and a sherpa and a guide and the best part of drugstore psychologist one could ever ask for.
1: Oh, Matthew Zachary, you're hired. (laughs) You're hired. (laughs) No, Matthew, I love you, and and it's been we've we've been through a lot together. We have individually, together, as a community, as forces on different communities from. Just cancer survivorship to advocacy to infertility survivorship to parent survivorship. Right. (laughs) We just have a lot of crossover and so many different things. And I am, you know, so thrilled to see how things have evolved for you. And I'm so excited to participate. Yeah,
0: and as of this recording, this past weekend was the virtual CancerCon event that they put together, which was very, very well done, I will add, for a virtual conference. But it put me in like this very nostalgic place to Mm -hmm. really think about how things have happened. And I've been doing a lot of interviews about the origin of this company. And why am I back behind a microphone? And and like, who were the people that made me? Who are the people Mm. that made young adult cancer? Who are the people that no one ever will know exist, that made things possible today that everyone just kind of happily takes for granted for the right reasons?
1: I mean, you made stupid cancer, you made the young adult cancer movement. You did that.
0: I don't feel comfortable taking like that Large brush to it because I I look at the cast of characters that set the stage for the potential of a company like Stupid Canter to be successful in a way no one ever expected. And part of what I'm doing now is really thinking about who are the legacy institutionals that help make that happen. You know, names like Selma Schimmel or Ellen Stovall or Andy von Eschenbach, you know, to that extent, like the predecessors. Of all of this, and you at the forefront of choosing to do something very, very entrepreneurial when most people don't think entrepreneurially when shit happens. And we think very differently from like your stock, maybe nonprofit philosophies. And that, that I think is why we've been able to bond so well and learn from each other so much for so long.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, when I was diagnosed, I think my anger fueled action so fervently and so quickly. That rapid onslaught when you are diagnosed and it's your full-time job, you know, you're forced to make giant decisions that that, you know, as a young adult, I felt woefully unprepared to make, but yet I made them. And fertility preservation is a big component to that. I mean, what I went through in preserving my fertility, in accessing accidentally the most expensive clinic in all of Los Angeles, possibly even the whole country, Just because the person who answered the phone was so much nicer to me than the other two clinics. That's why I chose them. But I didn't know, of course, until I got there and was sitting with the business manager that it was incredibly expensive. And luckily, you know, on the phone with American Express, raising the limit on my credit card six months before the economy crashed. So I was able to pay for, you know, my son to be conceived 12 years ago, and he's now six and a half. And I think about how angry I was about everything, not just the diagnosis, but the fact that I had to put a major medical expense like that, 20 grand on a credit card and another five across the street at the pharmacy for, you know, my big pile of medications for the next two weeks to stimulate my ovaries. And that anger fueled really fast action. So, I mean, you have known me for a very long time. Actually, I think since that first year I was diagnosed when we first met, like my hair was just growing back when I met you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm naturally catalytic, just like you are. I'm naturally vocal. I have a natural sort of activist heart of, you know, not expecting my neighbor to be the change I wish to see, but being that change I wish to see and making it happen. Um, I assembled a pretty quick board, you know, to put together Fertile Action and we launched it and even held our first fundraiser even before I, I had surgery. That was so important to me because I felt, that was the only thing I could control in my life at the time.
0: I mean, that level of perseverance and and uh, sort of diffidence to the status quo, that was baked into you long before you had cancer. That's just been your your business mentality, your savvy a- as you.
1: Well, I don't know if it's savvy or obnoxious. I asked my parents. I, I mean, they've been telling me they haven't been able to tell me what to do since I was about three years old. So yes, there was a thing in me that my sister used to make fun of and her friends used to make fun of me for it. Like, oh, Alice, you know, wants to go change the world or save the world. And they used to make fun of me for it. So yes, there was definitely a volunteerism that was completely ingrained in the fabric of who we were as a family. It was an everyday aspect to who we were. And I think I kind of, you know, I took it and just, I don't know exactly where it came from. I mean, in high school, I was advocating for AIDS education at our high school and, you know, trying to break down stigmas around that conversation because it was the early nineties and nobody was talking about it in high school. And I remember just being so proud of, you know, our high school newspaper tackling that and us bringing in someone who I ended up becoming really good friends with, who uh, was not just HIV positive. He had already already been diagnosed with AIDS. And so I think throughout my life, I have found those things that I get very passionate about. comes very easily when there's something that I want to get behind and I think when you can align passion with a very clear purpose you can just impact the world in such a positive way and it doesn't have to be a big impact I think that's kind of the thing with with people like us like me and you who it isn't about like the entire world it's about your immediate world and that that could be like helping one person who then helps five who then helps 10 who then helps 20 who then helps you know 200,000 or, you know, whatever it is. But it does come with kind of, I think, an ultimate sense of responsibility of um, making this life where I kind of feel like I got a second chance as meaningful as possible.
0: Well, there's also like, you know, the song won't back down. There's this like, at what point are you so burned out and so just done with life and done with trying and yet you still get back up the next Day and keep trying to make that dent in the universe. And for as founder to founder, as someone who ran a nonprofit, as someone who managed communities, it's so fatiguing and yet inspiring. What did you do on? A, I mean, let's take the liquid courage out of the conversation. What do you do on a daily basis when you're just trying to figure out how the hell am I going to keep going?
1: I love that question. I'm going to start by saying. I'm not going to jump to an answer filled with like all the self care things that I do right. I think first, I want to say the harsh reality is I, like so many people just like me, walk a very fine line between complete and utter burnout and complete and utter determination and motivation. Right. And it is a really fine line. I think when you do marry that passion and purpose, it's hard to turn it off. And the best boundary that I have in my life is my six and a half year old son. because so it's like, man, when that end of the day hits and he knows when it's supposed to be his time, he holds me accountable. So forget about self-care. I've built in boundaries because I have a child and he knows the sacred times that we we've agreed to that are for he and I. And I would say that that alone is probably the biggest equalizer and the biggest balancer for my life is just that sacred time with him that he holds me accountable to. Because otherwise I'd, you know, work, I'd work and work and work and work and work. I mean, I would just keep working.
0: So the expression I would always say, say to myself, which I now I'm not sure if I should be guilty for or feel bad about, or if it was a good thing, is that if it, I don't do it, it won't get done. Is that obnoxious? Is that snotty? Or is that leadership? What is that?
1: No, I think that's the opposite of leadership. I think that that is, (laughs) I think it's that you find the most confidence in yourself because you're so clear about how you want the outcome to look. So you know you can get it done. I think leadership is about saying, I'm not the only one who can get it done and I'm going to let them get it done differently than me, even if the quality of the result is not what I want. You know, and at this point, even with my current company, you know, in the first vertical that we have, being still focused on the fertility field, we're too big for me to do everything. And the company will end up failing if I had that attitude every day of if I wanted to get done, I got to do it. If I had that attitude, like we would fail. There's too much to do. That's it would be inhuman. But I do think that it's hard when it is your your vision and your baby to kind of allow people to take certain pieces and. And do it. And like I said, even if it's a way that doesn't look exactly the way that it would look if you put, you know, if you did it, but if it still can produce the right result, then I have to be kind of unattached to the either the method or the way or the outcome itself.
0: Yeah. The, and I, that's the biggest challenge I had. And, and the, the folks that led Stupid Cancer with me as we grew, Kenny Kane, Mallory, and Allie Ward, they'll testify that how hard it was for me to de-velcro myself to the world delegation and trust. And they reinforce that if you do it the right way with people you trust and lead and learn from them, it works. So it, it became less about if I don't do it, it won't get done versus if we don't do it, no one else is mm-hmm. going to get it done. And that's where I'm at now with this this new venture. I'm following your footsteps with respect to carrying forward my passion from the nonprofit to the private sector. And right. the wisdom I have now, which, again, akin to what you've learned from your experiences working, is that if you don't build the right team and trust the right team at the onset, you're never going to be able to move anything forward.
1: I also think we have to expect that we're not always going to get it right. I have made mistakes with teammates, people that I love, I respect, I wish that it was the right fit. But it's like you're not married to 100 wives for a reason. There's one that was the right fit. And that has been difficult as well, because I, I think had this expectation going into this current startup, you know, back in 2017, I I knew I had to be really careful in who I hired. And I would get really excited about people and their skill set and what they bring to the table and their, their commitment to it and their passion, but it's not always the right fit. And it's really painful when you have to, it's really painful when you have to walk away. It's so painful for them, but I don't think because they're getting let go of a job, they don't realize how painful it is for us as leaders that ability, we only have so much money in the bank account to make a company work.
0: Back with our guest after the break. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners.
1: Visit SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery.
0: So I, I love... What you've chosen to do with this third, fourth, fifth, sixth, whatever act of this is is yours, we're in like our 45th (laughs) acts of our lives. But your passion for fertility really did drive this new company, MedAnswers, and the app. But where I'm looking to you for some wisdom is how did you find the learnings of being in the nonprofit sector that could factor into help a private sector company do business differently?
1: You know, oh gosh, that's another really great question, Matthew. So, I mean, for starters, I will say it is so much easier raising money in a for profit environment than in a not for profit environment for me. It's just so much easier. You know, getting people to buy into a very monetary ROI, for better or for worse, was far easier for me to do than to get them to buy into a social ROI. So, what I carried into this venture. Is that if I could marry the two, which is do good and there's a capitalistic reward for all involved, that has people so incredibly excited. We were doing the math the other day, and it's pretty darn close to about 80% of my company is owned by the fertility community. It's owned by people like me who are advocates, patients, physicians, scientists, researchers, lab directors, embryologists. I'm so incredibly proud of that fact. We probably could come out with a public statement and say we're the only community-owned fertility company that's even out there.
0: It's astonishing, and I'm nodding my head on the radio here because I feel like we're accomplishing the same basic philosophy of bringing in people who are the mission, even though it is private sector. And yes, honestly— Raising capital in the private sector versus the nonprofit sector speaks to the very philosophies of Dan Pallotta and how the nonprofit model is fundamentally flawed to be successful because of those limitations. And you can't have investors in the nonprofit space. And there's always this scrutiny over paying overhead and, and, and compensation factors. And, you know, you should have, you know, less lamps and in, in have less electricity, <laughs> right. work in the dark. <laughs> Who needs gravity? Come on, save some money for the mission. You know, exactly, but to, to your point, I
1: and I really, actually, really just kind of hate that about the U.S. You know this idea that an executive director should make the same as a startup CEO. You know, in the nonprofit space, and I, I, I really, I, I'm also fundamentally completely against unpaid interns for the same reason. Agreed. You know, I that probably could be a whole another show. <laughs> yes, um, yes, it could. So. <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, I just, we have our values backwards, right? I mean, we just do. It's, it's like, you know, we have all these social ills. We have all these breakdowns in the healthcare economy. We have so many problems to tackle. And the world has sort of declared, like, we place more value on someone who can turn it into a profit producing venture rather than somebody in the not-for-profit who's just going to solve the problem. And then they shouldn't, therefore, you know, Earn the same amount of money, and I—it's the same business. It's right. the exact same business, mm-hmm. and one has protection for tax exempt status, and one doesn't. And that's it. That's the only difference. To me, it was always a really bizarre world out there in the C three space, and how how value is evaluated and judged and compensated. Well, that's
0: the word judged. You run a charity, you're under like this this odd social lens. That somehow mm-hmm. has this rose-colored skewedness to it that you can't do certain things that you can do over here. And how dare you want to hire somebody that is getting paid compensatory to their similar role in the private sector. Maybe not you're know, paying $30 million to somebody running a nonprofit that's only bringing in $50 million a year. But it's that judgment and that stigma. And I, I will I will say here, and I've been very vocal about this, I never really wanted to build Stupid Cancer to be donor, individual donor dependent, for the very sake of being told, I'm writing you a check, but don't spend it here.
1: Right? Yes, absolutely. No, I know. It's a, sort of the same of Fertile Action. I mean, at some point, I think I just sort of gave up even in raising funds and figured, let me just go make my for profit venture really successful. So I can just fund, you know, what we need to do at the charity.
0: So so let, <laughs> let's take a minute to do a humble brag. Like what's your app doing now? How many users? How many engagements?
1: Sure. So we've created a pretty vast community. So we have kind of the way that we look at our brand Fertility Answers. We have an iOS and an Android app, plus we have fertility.medanswers.com. plus we have a very strong video platform presence, if you will, that we distribute a couple hundred videos per year on Facebook, Instagram, Instagram. And on YouTube, and then we promote them, of course, on all, across all social channels. So we add 3,000 new users into the app itself. We have about 50% of the IVF clinic side engaged in the platform. So we drive direct patient connections with those experts. Our patients can ask anonymous questions so they can get actual factual feedback. It's not medical advice but it is the exact personalized information that they cannot get on Google. They cannot get it in a Facebook group. This is not peer to peer emotional support. This is not peer to peer medical advice. This is patient to expert, user to expert, and we hope that the user will become a patient in a clinic somewhere or through a telemedicine sort of, you know, environment at a later date. And, you know, our community is anywhere from, you know, 700,000 engagements per month to like one and a half million, depends on how much I've got to spend that month, (laughs) you know, on on making sure that we're in front of everybody. But we have, you know, an incredible reach at this point. Our Instagram community is a hundred percent just focused on inspiration and education. So we do a lot of, you know, take a lot of content from the app. We work with a lot of our experts to kind of, you know, infiltrate that part of the social channel to just to make sure that we're known as an unbiased, impartial voice we really are here to amplify everyone else's voice who is a true expert. We're not here to pretend like we are the trusted experts. We're just the trusted channel to make sure that our users get to the right place as fast as humanly possible.
0: I love it. I was just doing a show earlier today, talked about why I created Stupid Cancer. And the gist was, it's what I wished I had. And you're doing exactly that.
1: That's exactly right. And I think the genesis of my idea came from even my cancer experience, because I had two oncologists who disagreed with the treatment plan that I was supposed to be on. I had already started the treatment. So can you imagine that moment where it's like, wait a minute, am I in the wrong chemo? Right. Like, Oops. I already feel like I'm dying from chemo. And like, now Whoops. you're going to tell me I might be on the wrong one. That was probably one of the worst moments of my life. And so I, for whatever reason, at the you know, ripe old age of 31, got these two oncologists on a conference call. So I could listen to them talk to each other about my treatment plan, almost like I was a voyeur in a tumor board. And that was a, you know, defining moment of my life. Like when you look back, you're like, that was a defining moment of my life. I got what, what self-advocacy was in that moment. And it truly was the seed, not even the fertility preservation that was because this happened, you know, after, but that was the seed for why I wanted unbiased Free access to personalized healthcare information. And yes, people can scroll through. 14,000 answers have already been provided on the platform. Mom, people can scroll through those. Um, was
0: actually gonna be, he was actually going to be on with me a little bit after. And that's right now. Okay.
1: And I think that's why.
0: That's the best part of doing these shows is when the kids show up. <laughs>
1: Do you edit these? <laughs> no, we're gonna
0: we're keeping that in there. That is Dante, he's the literal byproduct of your passion.
1: Yeah, he totally is. And he just needed to give me an update on his next digital play date. See? That is 2020, folks. That's 2020. <laughs> <At his laughs> <finance>. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it was so much the genesis, right? Because it, when I see patients ask a question and you can review their health data, it's all HIPAA compliant, they're anonymous, you know, there's no identifiable data information that, that's transmitted. But when you see their health data and they ask these very specific questions, you know, people are giving us their lab results, you know, sperm counts, you know, what all the semen analysis looks like. They're giving us this very, very, you know, complicated kind of question. And when I see three and four answers responded to them by experts in our community, different voices, it might be the embryologist or it might be an REI or it might be a generalist. And I think, oh my gosh, there's never before has anybody gotten that in the healthcare environment. They've never gotten four answers to a, a medical question before, and they've never had any of the answers be upvoted by the medical community. There are a lot of things that we can do better in the app environment. We have our eye on so many cool product improvements, but that basic thing that we have stood for since day one, which is to end the spread of misinformation and you know, through this personalized approach, I feel so proud of my team for that.
0: Right, exactly. And again, you, you have created an environment that now makes it more conducive for a woman or a man, you put alphabet letters together that haven't been put together before. And it's not B to B, not B to C, it's not C, it, it's like P to E, P to E. I know,
1: I know, I know. It, that's kind of a cool way to look at it. You're right, because it's it's true. Like if I'm in front of an investor, it's sort of a B to C to B model from a business model standpoint. But but that's right. I mean, I look at the market and I see, you know, what is Teladoc missing? Well, it's missing continuity. yes, you can get your your literally your ten minute telemedicine visit for your you know for whatever issue you have, but where's the continuity of like health data or is the continuity of just the relationship or it's a transactional moment and I think what we're really you know looking to embark on in sort of the what's next even with app development is is that well, what is next? It's the okay, we can take your health data. we can match you to the right solution because we're working with all these experts and we know that if you have PCOS, this is the kind of ovulation kit you need, you know, versus that kind. If we can even look at your health data and say, okay, you already meet the definition of infertility. Do you want to go ahead and schedule a consult with one of our providers? We can help. So I I do look at the market and I go, okay. And then, and then you even see on Facebook, it's not just patient groups that have exploded. It's also physician groups. And, And this, I think probably above all else, drives me crazy. There's a Facebook group with 70,000 physicians that give each other, you know, case reviews and peer-to-peer support on, on things that they're dealing with in their practice. 70,000 physicians, all that great content. It's not getting down to the patient level and it's never going to come out of Facebook in some kind of usable fashion.
0: That is correct it's it's (laughs) dying dying on the vine of facebook it
1: is it's dying exactly that's
0: unfortunate but
1: but they they turned to that because they didn't have anywhere else to connect right and there are a couple of sort of social networking sites for physicians and a few of them out there and but again what are they missing they're missing the, the patient part and that's been our biggest thing right in in the advocacy world since day one is how do we how do we disseminate the right information at the right time to patients who need it when they're in crisis? You know, and how do you move research from the bench into the clinic faster? And so, you know, all these tools and, and use, utilizing technology is the only option, but it has to be in a in a much more health-centric environment and not on social media. I just think that people did that out of desperation. They had nowhere else to go.
0: That's exactly I almost it. wish it would be
1: banned. I know. I wish it would be banned. Yeah, I wish it's like... It is. And, you know, the other thing that I think is so unfortunate is, I mean, none of it is anonymous. Those Facebook groups, whether it's closed, secret, open, none of it is anonymous. Whatever you post there, but that's how how much we are craving good information and, unfortunately, immediacy in getting the information. Because whether you have an urgent or emergent or just, you know, it's crisis, but it's not urgent we live in a world where people expect immediacy. And that's what they get from participating in those social media groups is they get immediacy even if it's the absolute wrong piece of advice from someone who lives halfway around the world from you. They still There's something about this social media experience that, that people love and crave the immediate feedback loop.
0: The pros and cons of modern tech. Alice Creasy, breast cancer survivor, advocate to the universe, founder of Med Answers. I love you. I adore you. Your family. We've been doing this together. Let's keep doing it together. And more to come. Alice will be back many, many times here on Out of Patience. So thanks for joining me, my friend.
1: Thank you. I love you.
0: Love you too. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary.